At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be launching a new sermon series. We're going to be back in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, All the way back from Christmas of 2016, we've been walking through Matthew's Gospel with some breaks to, to do a few other things. But now we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 18 through 20. And in these chapters, Jesus communicates to his followers how they are to relate to a number of different things that are important to them. Things like children and their spouse, temptation, eternal life, blessing, what to do if you find yourself in a position of leadership. How do you respond to those who have wronged you? There are a number of different topics that Jesus covers with his disciples in Matthew 18 through 20, and we're going to be looking at those as Christ has ordered them here for us in Matthew um, over the next eight Sundays. Today, we're going to launch that series by looking at how we are as followers of Christ to relate to children. We're going to see that from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, and then also in chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. But before we look at that, I want to just share one statistic with you. That statistic is this, 80%, 80%, 4 out of 5, 8 out of 10. My math is spot on, 80%. Now, what does 80% relate to? Well, 80% is roughly the number of American Christians who trusted Christ before their 21st birthday. Statistics would tell us that 8 out of every 10 people who are a follower of Jesus in America today trusted Jesus before their 21st birthday. Now, how does that statistic strike you? How does that make you respond? Well, for some, you're excited it's like, yes, that's awesome. Look at that. That's fantastic. There is a generation of people who are growing up knowing Christ from a very early age. For others of you, though, you might be frustrated. You might be thinking, are we really that bad at sharing the gospel with people after they turn 21? Maybe that is part of how you're, you're feeling. Or maybe you're, you're, you're here and you're thinking, you know what? I've not trusted in Christ, and I'm over 21. Does that mean that there's no hope for me? You might be frustrated in that direction. But statistics would say that this number, and just just, just to run this number around our room a little bit, just if you have trusted Christ before your 21st birthday, and you're comfortable, would you just raise your hand and, and wave? I mean, I think that statistic probably holds basically true here. Now, what's going on with this? What's What's happening? that so many young people are coming to Christ. And why is it happening in that way? We find our answer by looking at the New Testament. And in the New Testament, what we see in the ministry of Jesus is is we see him exhibiting a tremendous heart for the next generation. We see him reaching out with love towards children and students and not preventing them from coming to him, but inviting them to come to him. You know, as a church, we are for the next generation, not because it's a nice slogan or we just happen to have a lot of kids in our community. We're for the next generation because we believe that Jesus is for the next generation. And that number right there is incredibly motivating for me to be involved. I I volunteer every chance I get with our children's ministry, whether it's teaching in our Awana ministry on some Wednesday nights, 
or whether it's participating in the teaching in our vacation Bible school, or, or, or whether it's hanging out with our students in student ministry whenever they'll invite me down there, all of those kinds of things, going to a college lunch. Why are we excited about Next Generation Ministry? We're excited about it because we believe that Jesus is for the next generation, and he's inviting them to follow him. In, in a largely disproportionate number, a number of Christians in America have trusted Christ before their 21st birthday. Now, what does the New Testament say about Jesus's perspective and attitude towards children. And as followers of Christ, how might we relate to children? Well, we're going to look at that as the subject of the teaching today as we look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, in chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. In these two different sections, we're going to see two things today. As it relates to children, Jesus holds up children as an example for each of us, regardless of our age. We'll see that. But then also he issues a challenge for us to disciple and develop children as followers of him. First, let's read these verses and then we'll unpack them. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Then, continuing on in chapter 19, verses 13, it says, Then children were brought to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus responded and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he's laid his hands on them, and he went away. Friends, in these verses today, we're going to see two things as it concerns us relating to children. The first thing that we see is an example that Jesus pulls from a child for each of us, and that is a challenge for us to develop childlike humility. It's a challenge for us to develop childlike humility. Now, where do we see that in this passage? Well, in in verse 1 of chapter 18, we get the context for what's going on. It says that the disciples, the 12, come up to Jesus and they ask him a question. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what was their posture as they're asking this question? Did all 12 disciples link arms and skip their way to Jesus in perfect harmony, going, you know, Jesus, we have a question for you. And they kind of skip up and they go, we have a great question. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is that what they were doing? No. Mark and Luke's gospel tell us that they were actually arguing about who was the greatest. They didn't skip their way to Jesus. They fought their way to Jesus. I'm better than you. No, you're better than me. Jesus, could you answer this? Which of us is greatest? That's the context of the question. Now, before we look at it any, with any more depth, I, I want to, first of all, just acknowledge, isn't it amazing the honesty of the Scripture? 
This book was not written to glorify the disciples because who was it that wrote Matthew chapter 18? Matthew, one of the 12 who was there arguing, one of the foils of the story. This book was not written to glorify Matthew. This book was written to glorify Jesus. So their argument spills over and they come to Christ and they ask who's the greatest. Now we gain a further offense when we see this question asked because of what Jesus had just been talking about. When we look back at chapter 16 and chapter 17 of Matthew, repeatedly Jesus is talking about the cross. Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. That's what's coming. He mentioned that on multiple occasions. How do the disciples respond when Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to die? They have an argument over who is greatest. And we, we see that and we, we see that disconnect and we go, what in the world were they doing? It, now, as human beings, we understand what they were doing. We all have a tendency to look at life through our grid, from our perspective. How does it impact me? We all have that temptation to be selfish. But the disciples come and they're arguing. Beyond just their humanity, though, I think it's helpful for us to think of what else had just happened that might pepper this conversation. You see, a number of other things had happened. Just flip back to Matthew chapter 14. Who walked on water? Jesus, but who else? Peter had. Peter had just walked on water. Did the other 11 disciples walk on water? No, Peter did. Then flip over to chapter 16. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but this was revealed to you by my father who was in heaven. And then he calls him a rock and then he gives him some keys and all of this stuff happens and the disciples see all of it play out. Jesus was directing that conversation with Peter within earshot of the disciples. What else happens? Well, at the beginning of chapter 17, Jesus goes up on a mountainside. Does he invite all 12 to come with him? No, he invites three to come with him, Peter, James, and John. And while they're on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured into his glory, and they, they see him in his glory, and they, 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 they write about it. All, all three gospel accounts talk about this event. It was a significant event. But nine people didn't get to participate in that. And then we, we look over at what had most recently happened. A question comes up in the end of chapter 17 about paying taxes, and Jesus tells Peter to go down to the water and catch a fish, and inside that fish there's a couple of coins, one to pay Jesus' tax and the other to pay the other 12s? No, to pay Peter's tax. In recent context, some pretty significant things had happened with Peter. So you can imagine Knowing human dynamics, what was going on in their minds? Hey, Jesus, how come he gets all of that stuff and we get none of it? How come those three get to go up on the mountain but not me? How come they're the best? How do I get to be the best? If they're number one, two, and three, how do I get in the playoffs? How do I get the fourth spot? How do, how do I become Peter? How do I jump them in priority? They're having this conversation. They want to know the ins and the outs. They want to know how the selection is being made. They come to Jesus and they, they ask that question. It's 
So how does Jesus respond? Knowing that they're playing this comparison game, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus uses the example of a child. He looks around and he says, hey, little child, come here. In the original language, uh, the, the, the word that is used here for child is talking about a very young child, like a toddler. He says, hey, hey, toddler, hey, Simeon, hey, Bible name kid, come here. He, he, he invites him over. And he, and he picks up this child, and it says he places that child in, its, in the midst. He, he sets him right there. Now, where did this conversation happen? Most likely, this conversation happened in the city of Capernaum. Where was Jesus' home base in the city of Capernaum? His home base was at Peter's house. Who would have been toddlers hanging out at Peter's house? Might have been Peter's kid. Might have been his nephew. Might have been the neighbor kid that was always coming over when food was around. We, we don't know for sure. But this was a child probably that Peter knew. And so the disciples are having a conversation, and they say, which of us is greatest, jealous of Peter? Jesus calls the least of Peter's household, front and center, and sets this child down and says, you want to know who's the greatest? Let's take a look at this little child. This little child right here is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This little child right here, unless you imitate this child, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven, much less be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uses the least. Now, in that culture, especially, children were not an example. They were to follow an example. And yet Jesus here takes a child and he makes the child an example. And so the question that we ought to be asking is, what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus encouraging us to just be juvenile, to just transcend back to a mentality as a, as a child and everything that is involved with a child to be immature and all those things? Are we, are we supposed to just transition back to that point? I, I don't think so. I don't think Jesus' point was to call us back to being a juvenile, but I think what Jesus was doing in that child, he says there's some characteristics of a child and the humility that a child has that all of you should develop, that all of you should model. You see, that, that child found itself in its place because Jesus asked and the child came. child didn't take it to committee. He didn't ask questions. He didn't argue. Jesus says, come here, Simeon, and the kid comes over. And Jesus says, I want you to sit right here, Simeon, and the child sits right there. And in that act of coming to Jesus when he calls and staying where Jesus places him, the child is exhibiting a childlike humility that doesn't argue but just accepts his spot. Think, again, toddler, young child, not teenager. In this instance, he says, this child is a picture of humility. And Jesus said, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, it will happen not because of your ambition. It will happen not because your hard work. It will happen not because your resume. It will happen not because you are deserving or worthy. If you want to enter into the kingdom of God, it will happen because I invite you in. And it will happen because I have placed you in a position of blessing and honor. That's how it happens. And friends, 
that is the, the picture for us. Again, if you came in here today and, and your hand didn't go up earlier because you've never trusted in Christ, some of you, certainly your hand didn't go up because you've trusted Christ since your 21st birthday. Praise God and amen. But if you have not trusted in Christ and you're here today, what Jesus is saying is, he says, regardless of your age, if you want to enter into a relationship with me, then be humble like this child. Come when I've called you. Allow my work, Jesus says, my death on the cross, my resurrection from the grave, to pay the penalty for your sin and to give you new life. Allow where I have placed you to be the spot of of blessing and the source of your honor, not on the basis of your ambition, not on the basis of your resume, but on the basis of who I am. Jesus calls him in humility, and he says, if you want to even enter into the kingdom of heaven, you will enter humble like this child. But then he makes that second point, right? He says, even the greatest in the kingdom of God will, will have this. Who is he talking to there? He's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the disciples who had, were, were trusting in Jesus. They had left all to follow him. He's talking to you and I who have trusted Christ, some before our 21st birthday, some after our 21st birthday, but have humbled ourselves to say, our only hope for eternity is you, Jesus. But yet when we live out our lives We can struggle, right? Because we begin to play the comparison game. Jesus has called us, we've come, but we don't like where he's placed us. Jesus, how come that person doesn't have to deal with this illness, but I do? Jesus, how come those people's kids seem to obey more than my kids do? Jesus, how come that person gets to have that job but I have this job. Jesus, how come that family has these resources and our family does not? Jesus, how come that person is popular and has a lot of friends and yet I'm sitting alone at home on a Friday night? It's totally possible for us to just spend our lives looking around at the other believers in the line and wondering why it is that God seems to bless one more than others. To us, friends, Jesus calls us And he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, allow me to call you and come and allow me to place you and you can rest in that place. Of this, Spurgeon says, he says, it is wisdom for a man to humble himself for thus he will escape the necessity of being humbled. Children do not try to be humble, but they are so. And the same is the case with really gracious persons. The imitation of humility is sickening. The reality is attractive. May grace work it in us. Friends, how do we have an authentic humility as followers of him? What, what, what do we do? I want to just mention a few things today. One of the things that we can do as we develop this kind of childlike humility is we can remember, we can remember all that he has done for us. Just remember all that he's done for us. You know, when we think about all that God has done for us, if we know Christ, that means our sins are completely forgiven. That means that heaven is secure. That means our life is eternal. That means that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is given to us. That means that eternity will not be marred by the things that challenge us in this life. If that is true of every follower of Christ, why are we playing the comparison game now? One of the ways that we develop a humility is by just relaxing and resting in all that God has done for us and all that he will provide for us into eternity. 
The child comes and rests. We're invited to do that, remembering the blessing that God has given. The second thing we think about is remember his presence with us. Remember who he is. Remember that he's promised to never leave us. So right in the midst of where we are, if we know Christ, his spirit is present with us. As we gather together today, the body of Christ is around us. We remember that. It allows us in humility to go, you know what? I don't have to control this because he does and he is present with me and his body is around me to encourage me and support me. God has got it, so I don't have to own it. Remember his wisdom. Remember his wisdom. Next thing that we think about, remember that he knows more than we do. His ways are perfect. He has placed us according to his purposes, and it may seem challenging, and we may have questions about it, but we can develop a humility when we go, you know what, Lord, I don't see it, I don't understand, but whatever I'm dealing with, I believe that you are worth it and that you are in this and that your wisdom will show forth in whatever you want to do in and through me in the midst of this. Because we need to also remember that he can redeem our experiences. The things that he takes us through prepare us for even ministering to others around us in this life. Friends, the example of a child, the disciples are are struggling with who is greater. Jesus holds up the example of a child and he says, childlike humility is something for you to develop as you depend upon me. It's a challenge for each of us. But after giving that challenge, uh, Jesus then gives a second challenge. And this is a challenge for us to develop children in him, to disciple them, to take advantage of the opportunity that he has given to us to pour into the next generation. Again, the context inside of verses 5 and 6 of chapter 18 and then verses 13 through 15 could certainly be expanded to include all who with a childlike faith come to him. In other words, he's not just talking about little children in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 18, but it also includes them. Jesus said that we should take advantage of our opportunities to develop children in him. Verse 5 says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now that is a powerful picture. What Jesus is saying there is he says, anyone who shows hospitality to one who comes to us in Jesus' name, anyone who reaches out, who, who accommodates, who, who teaches, who comes alongside, who welcomes, that they are not just welcoming that person, but they are welcoming a representative of Jesus Christ. Let me just put some flesh on that maybe to make it more real for us. Every Sunday we have 100 volunteers working in the building behind us with, with children. And every Sunday and Wednesday downstairs in our fellowship center and in the rooms that surround it, we have people who are receiving in students into their rooms. Many of you volunteer in those ministries. And I want you to think just for a moment about working in the nursery. And you're in that nursery and, and somebody comes and brings a child and they hand them over that little half door and you receive that child into your arms. You know what this passage tells us? When you receive that kid in Jesus' name, you're receiving Jesus. Does that add some dignity to the drop-off? 
When you think about showing up and leading that seventh grade small group or that sixth grade small group, you realize that when you open the door and they come running in and you're beginning to interact, that you're not just interacting with a sixth or a seventh grader, but you're showing hospitality in Jesus' name. Representatives of Christ are coming to you and you are welcoming them to you. Jesus adds dignity to all of those kinds of ministries, and they would apply throughout the way. When you open your house and a small group meets there, you're opening the doors in Jesus' name. When you receive people into your adult Sunday school classroom, you're receiving people in Jesus' name. Jesus reminds us of the power of those moments. We are to receive them. And the opposite of receiving somebody in Jesus' name would be rejecting them or causing them to stumble. This is what he gets into in verse 6. He says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. The opposite of receiving is rejecting or causing to stumble. Jesus takes quite seriously the social implications of sin. He says, in your interactions with others who are connected to me, do not take any of your opportunities as, a, as something to lead them into sin. He says, we put it in several categories, that to husbands and to wives, whoever fills out the taxes in your house, don't intentionally cheat on your taxes. Because in so doing, not only is it a sin for you, but you're leading the filing jointly into that sin as well. Think about this to, to those who are considering sex outside of marriage, whether that is in your dating relationship or whether that is in somebody who is not your spouse. We often think of that sin as a sin between you and God or a sin maybe with just yourself, but the reality is that that's also a, a sin that you're inviting somebody else into. You're leading them into sin. The gossip conversation that you just can't lay off of if you begin it and you invite them and you encourage it and it continues, it's not just you that is sinning. At that point, you're inviting and encouraging another to sin. And, and how serious does Jesus take this? Friends, he takes it incredibly seriously. The, the example he gives is certainly one of hyperbole, but it's, it's no less serious to show the, the, how serious he takes this. He talks about a form of capital punishment that the Romans did where they would tie a millstone around someone's neck and toss them into the sea. Jesus says, I take this very seriously. Receive those in Jesus' name. Don't lead them to sin. Don't lead them to stumble. The example that we set in our homes with our own children, we should receive them, develop them, disciple them. Don't abuse them. Same is true of our relationships inside the church. Not only does he say that we should receive them, that we should not lead them into sin, but also in his interactions in chapter 19, he, he says a number of things. He says these children were being brought to them. The disciples see this scene unfolding. You can imagine a number of mothers bringing toddlers and young children to Jesus, and they're sneaking through the crowd and dodging and bobbing and weaving, just trying to get them close to Jesus so that he might lay his hand on them and pray. And while that is, is happening, the disciples are looking at this and going, why are you bothering Jesus? Why are you bothering him with a child that is so insignificant? 
I mean, this is the guy that walked on water. This is the guy that feeds the 5,000. This is the guy that clears the hospital. This is the guy that preaches with authority. We're not going to bother him with just trying to lay a hand on your child. Let's, let's keep the more significant people having access to Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't having any part of that. This is the same attitude we might have. How come all those people being baptized are all kids? I'll come when they're adults, but children, I don't know. Why would we look down upon the act of what God is doing? Jesus says, let's let's not have that attitude, friends. Jesus said, these children are coming to me. Do not make it hard for them to get here. Welcome them in. Bring them here. Let me lay hands on them. Let Let me bless them. Let me celebrate who they are because I came to die for them. It's not two Jesuses, one for little kids and one for grown-ups. He says, I'm Jesus and I'm for everybody. Let them come to me. Friends, this is why we, we have children's ministries. This is why we have student ministry. This is why we have college ministry. We open the doors to those under the age of 21 and we invite them into environments where it's not difficult for them to learn about Jesus in ways that make sense and understand. So that from a very early age, they would come to know the depth of their sin, the hope that is found in Christ, the truth that is in God's word, the power of community, how to walk in the power of the spirit. These are all things that we're imparting to kids and to students inside of our ministries. This is why we do it. We're not just taking care of them downstairs while This room can be a little more quiet. No. It's a strategic opportunity to make it a path clear for children to come into a relationship with Christ. Now, what do we what do we do? If we we have a desire and we hear this and we're like, I want to, I want to be a part of helping children come to a relationship with Christ, of not making it difficult, but allowing them to come to us. What What are some of the things that we can do? I want to just list a few of them as we wrap up today. The first thing that we can do as we help children come to Jesus is we can pray. We can pray for them. We can pray for the children in our own household. We can pray for the children in our neighborhood. We can pray for the children in the schools that are near our houses. We can pray for the children and the next generation folks and students who are here at Wildwood on a Sunday morning. We can pray that God would be real to them. They would come into a real relationship with him. It would be dynamic and change the trajectory of their life in eternity. Sometimes we just get so discouraged about the, what we think the direction of the world is and all of these things. Hey, let's, let's do something about it. Let's impart Jesus to the next generation. We know where hope is found. Let's point people there. First thing we can do is pray. Second thing we can do is point. In our conversations with our kids, in our home, in our conversations with people around the church or in our community, that we would point those children to Jesus. That we would, we would let them know that he is the hope that we have. I mean, think about this as it relates to our, uh, uh, our time of meals. You know, when you have a, a dinner and you, you pray for your meal, what, what are you doing? But you're pointing to God. You're saying thanks, but you're pointing to him and saying this is because of him. What are other opportunities inside your home and inside your relationships where you can point to Jesus with your kids, with your grandkids, with those in your network? Next thing you can do is you can bring. You can bring your kids here. You know, it's amazing the power of involving children inside the body of Christ and in community. We don't have to have all the answers ourselves. We can, we can invite 
children to come with us to church. We can bring them and, and check them into their classes where they, they, they get these messages. We don't have to have all the answers, but we can place them in an environment where they can find out those things. You know, if I thought that my son, his only hope at learning calculus was to learn it from me, he would have no hope, friends. That's why we're excited to partner with a school. In the same way, we, we connect with the church because we know that Josh needs voices beyond just Kimberly and I. We make investments every Sunday so that when he needs advice, that there's another voice that is in some instances saying the same thing we are, but in a way that he might listen to later on. Friends, we, we make these investments. We, we bring and include. Fourth thing that we can think about is we can help. Uh, roughly 400 volunteers in our next generation ministries around Wildwood every year. Where do they come from? Well, they come from you. People who are willing to raise their hand and say, I'm, I'm willing to help before the next generation following Christ together to the glory of God. And if, as we talk about this, you're prompted in your heart, I'd like to be a part of that. I'm not right now. I'd like to be a part of ministry to, to, to kids or to students or college students or whatever. You could take your, your little bulletin, tear off that panel. There's a, there's a spot on there. You can fill out your information and just write, I'm interested in students. I'm interested in children, whatever. Our staff will follow up with you, let you know the opportunities that are available in that regard. And then the last thing we can do is we can include. We can include. We can include our children with us in the body of Christ. You know, one of the blessings that we have is the, the ability to, to host classes that are age-specific for our kids. And one of the blessings we have is the opportunity to have student ministry that is focused on middle school and high school and, and then our, our collegiate ministry. But when we think about all of the, the blessing there is with that, there also is a temptation there's a temptation for us to just segregate out by ages and never come together as the full body. At Wildwood, we've, we've, we've tried to mitigate against that by saying when kids turn to obey uh, sixth graders, we invite them to come into the worship service. Certainly, your children are welcome anytime in this room with us. But by programming, we only offer one hour of student ministry um, at 945 with the hope that students, sixth grade and up, would, would come with us into worship. Now, when I, when I say that, some of you are going, well, I don't know that that works for my sixth grader. I understand. I understand. But the question is, when will it work? The, the reality is, at some point, our kids will graduate. And when they graduate, they'll leave the world of being attached to people one or two years off of their mean age, right? And they're going to be in a world that is suddenly 18 to 100-year-old people really, really fast. What a blessing it could be for us as a church to begin to include the kids with us as we worship on Sundays and in special events and activities so that they might be able to, to see what it looks like to worship God and to follow Christ with people very different from themselves in a way that helps prepare them to walk with God inside of a multi-generational church for the rest of their lives. These are some of the ways that we can help children come to Jesus. Jesus takes the child and he places them among them and he says, this child is an example for us to follow, that we would develop a childlike humility. And then he offers a challenge, he says, and, and this child is a reminder of an opportunity we have to disciple and develop the next generation in him. Let's do that as we follow him this year.
Father, we thank you for just the privilege and the opportunity of following you. We thank you for the, the power of this passage and the hope that is there. I pray, Father, that you would give us just a humility that would lean on you for our eternal salvation, but also a humility that would lean on you and your providence and where you have placed us and called us that we would live our lives not with just an ambition to make much of ourselves, but we would live our lives with a desire to make much of you and to follow you and to give you all of the glory and the honor for all things. We thank you for the opportunity to do that together inside of this community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.